Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay, and I have with me via Zoom, as always, uh, Peter Catt. Uh, nice to have you here, Peter. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to be back. And normally on the podcast, I talk about Peter Catt's Zoom backgrounds, but on this particular recording, it's Sue Grimmett with her Zoom background I have to talk about. I think you're joining us from Hobbiton. Is that correct, Sue? Yeah, yeah. In, in Bag End. <laughs> Something for the Lord of the Rings fans there, which is the most creative Zoom background I've seen in two years of pandemic life. So um, lovely to have you both with us and so exciting on the podcast today to welcome back someone who joined us uh, only about half a year ago for a Christmas special um, and, and ever since then, we've been um, dying to have him back on the podcast. He is author, spiritual teacher, and well, I suppose many other things could sum up this man, but Alexander John Shire joins the podcast once again. Alexander John, thank you so much for, for making time for us. Oh, it's a delight. It's always a delight to, to be this close to Australia. <laughs> yes. Well, we know you spent a fair bit of time down here, so um, hopefully we can feel a little bit like a connection back to uh, to your years in Australia. Um, we, we had to get you back on after we sort of opened the, the quadratus, which work, which has been your life's work in our last podcast. And we had to follow that thread and explore it a little more in a separate conversation, which is, um, why we find ourselves here today. Uh, the book has a couple of different titles, depending on the edition you order, but the, the one I have is radical transformation, the four gospel journey of heart and mind. Um, and, uh, before we get into it, I just want to mention you are joining us from Spain, where you are based now, um, on the very verge of summer there. What, what's life like for you at the moment? Uh, this month has been absolutely lovely. This is the type of month you live for. Uh, life is easy and slow. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> That's lovely. Um, it, it ends in about, it, it, in about another week, it all ramps up again, but right now, <laughs> deep, easy breathing. Oh, lovely. And um, and speaking of the seasons, we mentioned just before we started recording that in December when we had you on last time, you were a bit rugged up and we were all in T-shirts. Here we are in the cooler months in Australia. We're rugged up and, and you're the one enjoying the summer, which probably <laughs> is a nice little um lead into to what we're actually going to talk about today a little bit, speaking of the cycle of, of nature and of reality. Uh, because the fourfold path that you explore in Quadratus, um, for those who haven't come across it before, as the pattern and rhythm of life itself, of our lives um, as, as we live them, and a pattern that can be trusted. Um, uh, anyone who's been around me in the last six months is probably a little bit sick of hearing about it because I I, uh, I have not shut up about it. It's, it's helped me, I think, more than just about anything else in, in my own mm. life. Um, and we're so excited to be able to have this conversation with you uh, on the podcast today. Just to begin with, for, for those, when you're exploring or, I guess, um, talking about Quadratus and this, this fourfold path, to people who've never heard of it before, how do you begin describing it? Uh, it how do I begin? I, I really begin with people's questions. Um, I, I think at one level for most Christians, we have been taught to think that the choice of the four gospel texts is some unfathomable mystery. Um, I don't think it's much of a mystery anymore. I think there's actually a very credible line uh, back to our Jewish mother that uh, explains exactly how and why uh, the early church was looking for uh, a choice of four texts. So yeah, really, um, as we as we move into this conversation, I'd, I'd prefer you to ask me questions because you know the, qu the questions that people are asking you. 
Yeah, sure, sure. Well, I, I suppose in a nutshell, the um, the the idea that is central to your work and and to Quadratus is that there are four great spiritual questions that we all journey through in life, and that um, your your discovery, your um, theory that the four gospels, each of them was written out of a community that was basically living one of these four questions. Um, can you maybe tell us, uh, as before we move into a bit of the individual stuff on the four, um, what, what, speak a little bit maybe about the, the four questions themselves and how you maybe discovered them along the way as, as these four central questions? Um, many, many years ago, now too many decades ago, when I was uh, at the University of Notre Dame here in the States, uh, I had the honor to be taught in the theology department by Joseph Campbell, the great uh, American mythologist. Mm. And in those days, Campbell described that every great story of transformation across the world and across human era always was organized around four parts or four or, or a sequence of four paths. Um, upon hearing that, I immediately had this intuition, could there be a connection between those four, those four parts of a journey of transformation and, the, and that Christianity developed exactly four gospel texts? So decades later, I finally, it, it all came together in the year 2000 by the work of an Anglican scholar, um, the Reverend Robin Griffith Jones, who helped me understand that each one of the texts was written at a particular moment to a particular early Christian community that was uh, wrestling with or trying to embrace one of the four great questions. And as soon as he put it in that context, I saw uh, another reasoning about how we came up with these four texts. And as I described the text of Matthew, the entire text of Matthew is trying to answer the question, how do we face change or how do we wake up to the need to grow? And that the gospel that we call Mark is trying to answer the question, how do we move through a time of great trial? An obstacle and the gospel of John is answering the question of how do we receive uh, a new vision, new, new sight, uh, and a sense of, of wider relationship. And then the gospel of Luke and acts of the apostles is answering the question, how do we mature in service? And those, those four questions really are exactly the same thing that Campbell was describing to me almost 50 years ago now in terms of every great story of transformation the world over mm. is answering those four questions. And early Christianity was looking for the content of the risen Christ in those four questions to help lead us forward. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so interesting, Alexander John, as well. And I know you, you've mentioned uh, on other podcasts before and in the book itself about your work doing Jungian sand play therapy and noticing that these four questions are how people tell their stories. And I've noticed, because I've been using your your um, this framework quite a lot in the school I work at this year is the sort of the central uh, idea we're exploring. 
And as I've had students come by to tell me their stories, I notice this is the this is the the structure. This is the framework they use to tell their life story. They they talk about you know when mum and dad said we had to move from Melbourne to Brisbane or Melbourne to the Gold Coast, and we packed up and I was scared. And then they say, and then the next few months or the next year was just awful and lonely and so difficult. And then there was this moment that everything changed and uh, suddenly I was loving life more than I ever had before. And then uh, I feel like it's grown me to who I am today. And this, regardless of what, who I'm talking to, how old they are, whether it's, you know, a principal or a year seven student and what they've lived through, these four questions, these four individual paths seem to be the way people tell their stories. Um, so, and, and this was a discovery you came across as an anthropologist and I guess in, as a psychologist before you came across it in the Gospels, wasn't it? It, it is, and it, it really um, so much for me goes back to, to Campbell, uh, who recognized that there was something very, very deeply universal about the human story. And that just as you've said, that we naturally flow the story out in this way. Um, which to me is one of the ways that I get so excited to know that when we hear in the Gospel of John that the Christos has always been, the, the Christ, the Christos, has got a rhythm. Mm. And all of us are uh, in, in service of that rhythm. The question is, will we harmonize with it or will we fight against it? And this way of understanding uh, the Christ and understanding the four gospel journey brings me home to what's most deeply true, but also what's most deeply human. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we will talk in a moment about each of the four parts in a little bit more detail, but the thing that's been so wonderful for me journeying through some of this stuff with students has been that when you move through the winter times of life, the Mark stuff, the suffering, the trial, there is this often this sense, not that this is one stage or one part of a fourfold path, but that this is the end. This is, you know, it will never be different. I have had the happy days and the happy days are done. Whereas reviewing the whole thing as some constantly moving cycle makes it so much easier to handle the, well, not easy is probably the wrong word. That's not quite the word I'd choose, but um, so much more fruitful to handle the, um, the difficulties of life. True. And, and also that there are cycles upon cycles. So as I often describe, um, your personal life can be in one path, your work life in another, mm. etc. So it's not that our lives move through this sequence lockstep altogether at once, but different parts of our life are at different parts of the sequence. Yeah. But I do believe that the sequence is fairly universal. And I don't think that, in, that when we're in the sequence, we don't skip steps. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. I had a, um, a year 11 student say, he kind of was, was hearing me talk about it and he came to see me and he said, so this is like kind of the blueprint of reality then, isn't it? And I thought, <laughs> oh, I'm using that, the blueprint of reality. I quite like that. Um, and it's interesting, Peter, I know on the podcast before, one of the episodes we've had maybe the most um, feedback about was when we spoke about the cruciform pattern, how all of life is death and resurrection, how we all go through death and then there's the emptiness of Holy Saturday and then the resurrection of, of Easter Sunday. Um, these patterns, these archetypal patterns are not what most people get from their religion, Peter, but they are so often what we, what we deeply need, aren't they? They sure are because they give us a sense of comfort. Um, Julian of Norwich talks about 
the cycle between consolation and desolation. And, and I think I think it's that idea that um, things will move on. And so Julian, in her her writing, says, "Take note of your times of desolation and your times of consolation." Therefore, when you are in a time of desolation, you will know that that consolation does follow. And when you're in a time of consolation, you will not be full of hubris. You will actually be realising that you are a part of this big rhythm. So I, I think the real strength is the fact that, um, that we are recognising that there is a pattern that does not only unfold but repeats itself because... We've also grown into the idea that history is somehow linear and our lives are linear, and yet this, this cyclical nature invites us to see that we're, we're going into the rhythm over and over again and, uh, and um, that the, the pattern is repeating in different parts of our life at different speeds. Um, and as we get to pattern recognition, which is one of the great human gifts, by the way, re recognising patterns, we see things where things don't exist, like in clouds and stuff like that. Once we have the gift of the pattern recognition uh, cutting in, we can actually save ourselves from absolute despair mm. and absolute hubris and arrogance. We actually allow ourselves to be more fully human. So I think that's what this this work this brilliant work is actually uncovering is that. We discover our humanity by discovering the pattern and the pattern helps us to discover our humanity. Yeah. And beautifully said, Peter. And I know, um, I know Sue, when you and I have spoken about this work as Alexander John's work as well, something you've said to me a number of times is perhaps one of the only guarantees we have is change. Um, <laughs> in a world where there feels like so little that we can bank upon, um, you could probably bank upon change. And I think there's also something when we talk about this spiral, it's, it's not going around in just in a circle of, of repetition. It's a deepening spiral. Mm, yeah. and there's a lot of hope in that, that things change. But you can also, as you go down, you, you're deep in your experience and your understanding and, you're in, and it enriches your life. Mm. So it's not Groundhog Day. It's not a you know, <laughs> go again. You know? mm. Yeah, no, that's really, really beautiful. So um, just to look a little bit at the four paths themselves then, and um, and I know that uh, the, the first time I heard you speak about this on a, on a podcast, uh, Alexander John, I realized how growing up in the church, I'd never really stopped to ask the question why the gospels were ordered as they were. And, and it doesn't really make a lot of sense when you think that Matthew comes first, even though it wasn't written first. Why did that happen? What an unusual choice from a tradition that did look at putting things in sort of a, a chronological order. Um, I, 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 I'm wondering uh, if you can talk a little bit about that moment where it hit you, maybe the, the revelation of, oh, this is why it must have been put this way. This is what they were trying to articulate all along. So, and, and I don't want to get too academic. So if I get too into, into this, just pull me back, redirect. Um, because not only my theological work, my, my anthropological work, I was really deeply into the rites of initiation worldwide. Then in the mid-1970s in the Roman Catholic tradition, we were rediscovering the ancient rite of initiation, which was developed in the second century of Christianity, which had four steps to it. Well, because of my anthropology and because of Campbell, I was already attuned to this, this foreignness rhythm. 
And um, this developed in the second century before the four gospels were fully named. And they developed this four-step process for to be baptized, which was to be not just a member of the Christian church, but to take your full place at the table. Hmm. So um, baptism in the second century was far more than just a first profession of membership. And so they developed this, this pattern and they put it under these ornate names, inquiry, catechumenate, purification, enlightenment, and mystagogia. Well, go beneath those names and you see this eternal universal pattern of transformation. And so I knew that there was this pattern that the church in the second century was already following. And we can track it back into the first century. And where did it come from? It really came from the Jewish way of celebrating Passover, which I won't go into, but uh, early Christianity knew about this four-step process of transformation, which led them to the choice of four Gospels. They needed a Gospel that told each part of the transformation journey and that gave us the fullness of the death resurrection in each part of the journey. So from, from that early understanding of initiation that I found in my anthropology work through what the Christianity used in the second, third, fourth, and fifth centuries, that um, all came together a hundred years later in the third century, where they named which were going to be the four gospels and they put them in the sequence of transformation, which is not the sequence that we have in the Bible. The sequence we have in the Bible is the fourth century lectionary. The sequence in transformation is Matthew, Mark, John, Luke, Acts. Mm. Uh, when the lectionary was put together in the fourth century, they developed a three-year pattern of reading the texts, but they understood that the third path, the experience of John, is found in the other three paths. In fact, it's the ground upon which we stand. So it's the, John is sort of that um, John is sort of a point and a wave, and. They put, they rather than give John a year in the three year cycle of reading the Gospels, they put John in a significant place in each one of the three years. So when we look at the Bible, we're seeing the fourth century lectionary sequence, not the sequence that the early church knew the four Gospels adhere to the journey of transformation, which is Matthew, Mark, John, and then Luke. John can never, 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 never be the final place. It's too exalted. The final place is Luke, which is service uh, and action in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is um, foreshadowing, I suppose, when we look at the, the four individual parts there, because this is one thing that I've actually thought um, as helpful as the idea of the cruciform pattern of death on Good Friday, emptiness of Holy Saturday, and resurrection of Easter Sunday. As helpful as that idea has been, it does miss the what next after resurrection. Um, there is that the fourth path is is missing. Do you just dance around and sing all day because resurrection's happened, or what do you do next? So 
that's um we'll get to that a little bit in the fourth path but um speaking of the first the first path just to look at this a little bit now and and people will find their own resonances i'm sure with their stories and and um and what they're going through at the moment but when we look at the first one, how do we face change? That first question where things have been moving along steadily in one way or another for some time and then some great disruption occurs and and suddenly we are full of fear, panic. Um, I know you, you equate this to autumn, so su- summer is ending, something is ending, we're, we're full of fear. Um, how was this something an experience? How was this experience something that the community of Matthew or that Matthew has written out of were going through at that particular time and ending? So we believe that this gospel, Matthew, is composed in the 70s of the first century. Uh, It's coming in the years immediately following the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Uh, That was the first pillar that was knocked down. The second was the massacre of the Jewish priesthood. So in those terrible days after the destruction of the temple and the massacre of the priesthood, there is no one left to lead Judaism forward. Everyone who has any connection to spiritual authority is gone. Mm. And the Jewish people at this moment have this, many of the Jewish people have this fear that God has torn up the covenant with Abraham and that there is nothing to move forward to, that the end is coming. Prepare yourself. The world is about to be destroyed by fire or water. The text of Matthew comes to the Jewish Christians and it says, oh, no, you don't really know the pattern very well if you think this is the end. Uh, This is a terrible moment and we won't get into how or why this moment happened. But the reality is that no matter how terrible this moment is, it's actually the moment of beginning again. Mm. This is not how things end. This is how things begin again. And so in Matthew, which has all the allusions in the text to autumn, because the Jewish people understood autumn as the new year, as the time the old year ends and the new year begins. And they also understood that autumn has a role, has a connection to sunset. And sunset is not when the old sunset is when the old day ends, but it's also when the new day begins. Mm. And Matthew is trying to teach his community and us that every time we find ourselves in a profoundly dark moment, maybe a moment much like today for many of us, this is not the end. This is actually the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Which, so yeah. Mm. he so one of the ways to describe the text of Matthew, rather than say only looking at it as the biography of Jesus, is that Matthew, I believe, inspired by the Spirit, has collected together the teachings of Jesus about how we face change, or how we live into a moment that seems to be terribly dark, and how we enter that time of darkness knowing that this is not how things end, but rather this is what the new beginnings are like. Yeah, I know um, Campbell refers to the beginning of the hero's journey as receiving the summons, um, you know, that, and it's interesting actually, Sue, that you do have the background of Lord of the Rings because I, I think about <laughs> Frodo living happily in the Shire at the beginning of Lord of the Rings only to receive the summons to go on the journey. And um, yeah. initially there's a lot of fear involved. 
Yeah, there's not much, not much you don't also find in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> that's very. It's all there. Yeah, that's very true. Um, but there is, there I is. Also, I also remember that that Campbell would say, unless you reject the call at the beginning, it's probably the call. The call is probably not deep enough. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you, you don't easily say yes. Yes, that's so. That's such a good point. And I, I know you write in the book that the the mm. destruction of the temple to this community, this was the central part of their life and their tradition. And the destruction of the temple was like their very the, the thing their whole life was based upon being torn apart. And you, you know, it doesn't take long if you ask people. Do you have a moment of remembering when everything you built your life upon crumbled and fell apart? That people remember the fear, remember the anything but this, remember the sense that I don't have it in me to do what's required here. Um, how how do you muster? Because this is the, the question I have heard quite a bit from students. When you have this sense that this is what's happened to your life, but you're so scared, you're so maybe still... Um, caught from where you have been or caught in where you have been, how do you find the courage to take even that first step into the new reality? So this to me is where uh, story comes in so powerfully. And whether it is turning to the scripture stories or whether it's turning to modern literature or whether it's turning to movies or whether it's turning to family and friends who have lived through times like this before, uh, to know that what you are experiencing is not something that you are the only person who, is a, have, who has ever experienced this, that this is deeply part of the human story. And that uh, all the mystics and all the saints and all the people who have gone before us have also had precisely this same experience. Mm. Now, if you're also uh, a person of great uh, spiritual practice, you'll know how to bring uh, times of deep prayer and meditation to this experience. But usually my, my sense is that when we're starting out, uh, we begin to, to listen to the stories of others um, as that first anchor to help us go deeper inside. Sometimes I think it's also the fact that actually life just went on. Um, I remember standing in an intensive uh, waiting room um, of an intensive care unit with a mother whose son had died during the night. And we happened to be overlooking the Pacific Ocean. The the waiting room had a spectacular view. And um, as we were standing there silently side by side, the sun came up, the dolphins were jumping out of the water, the surfers were catching waves. And she turned to me and said, you know, I really believe that the sun would not come up today. And for her, the realisation that life was going to go on actually meant that she was being drawn into something that actually took her by surprise. She really thought it was a bit like this part of the gospel story where the, you know, the face of the earth is covered in darkness and it's like the sun has gone, the sun has been extinguished in the middle of the day, so it's gone forever. And suddenly she was looking at me saying, what next? She was actually asking the what next question because she actually thought it had, it had all sorted itself and the darkness is going to consume her and that was the end of the story. So just life itself says, well, actually, we're not done yet. So you have to look for the pattern then. Yeah. 
And I do know, speaking of that story has resonances of this in it, Peter, but, but um, oh, the, the part of that particular chapter of the book, Alexander John, that just, I, I must have read it um, so many days over and over again, was the idea of greeting the betrayer. Because there is an element in these parts of our stories where we feel there has been a betrayal, whether our health has betrayed us, whether another person has betrayed us, maybe a company we worked for, a faith institution we were a part of. Um, whatever it might be, there has been some sense of, of betrayal. Someone has taken me away from where I was happily living and, and I have, I didn't want to go and I've been betrayed to now have to be here. And you, your unpacking of Jesus greeting Judas in this particular gospel is so beautiful. If you're happy to just uh, talk a little bit about that, about the idea of how we can greet the betrayer in a different way than jumping into anger and victimhood, uh, at least in time. So each one of the passion stories um, is not the video cam of those days in Jerusalem. It, it's the, the narrative of this particular question in our life. And what stops us so much on the first path of facing change is betrayal and our sense of anger that someone has done something wrong or the government has done something wrong or corporations have or our spouse or whoever or our own sense of guilt about how we have betrayed others. Mm. So uh, the way this passion narrative in Matthew starts, uh, it's only in this passion, Matthew's passion, that right at the moment where the betrayer comes to arrest Jesus, that Jesus names again this individual as the betrayer. And I, I, I try to not use the particular name, because it's not really about that person. It's about that each one of us are going to pray to be through a power like Jesus to do what Jesus does, which it says the betrayer arrives and Jesus says to the betrayer, friend, friend, do what you have come to do. And that is the most incredible grace moment on the first path when our when our old temple when all the fundaments of life are shaken and we can look at this moment and say friend and that's not that i like this moment or i agree with this moment or i'm saying that this moment is okay no 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 i'm just saying that i know no matter what's happened that there's a reality that can help me meet this moment and help me grow through it. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's so striking when you think about that, how many people um, 10, 20 years on from, from some sort of sense of betrayal can still be stuck in a, a narrative of victimhood and bitterness. And, you know, it doesn't take long for them to tell you what was done to them. And they're still resisting the, the summons. They're still, even though that was long ago, resisting the summons. And, and it, it, I, is it fair to say you can't step fully into the second path until you're able to accept and and in some way, um, in some way at least, embrace the betrayer? In some way. And, I, and uh, I, I love, as Sue said, this is a spiral and we keep coming back to this moment at a deeper and a deeper level. So it's not a once and done. Mm. Uh, it, it's a always a gradual process of coming back to again, in some ways, meet the, the betrayal and going deeper into, into the grace of release uh, and the deeper journey. 
Yeah, and it frees us, I think, from scapegoating in a really beautiful way. That's something that stood out to me is that when when you feel any sense of betrayal is, has been done to you, the, the inclination is to scapegoat the institution, the person, the idea, whatever it is that betrayed you. Mm. And they're the problem. If the world just didn't have them, we'd be okay. Whereas this right. sees us all as people who will be betrayed and will betray. It, you know, it is part of the the pattern itself in a way, which um, just so beautifully frees us from, from needing villains and enemies, doesn't it? It does. And, I, and what I keep working with people on is that this is not a court of law. Um, that's a different reality. Mm. This is about no matter the horror that has visited your life, that there's a reality that can help you move through it. Mm. I think I think also the text, you know, because in in the Gospels, Judas is actually referred to as the hander overer, and later translators, particularly into English, have decided to use the word betray, which was an option actually open in in the Gospels. Um, they could have used they could have used the word betray, and it's only actually used once in Acts of the Apostles, and so Judas is the one who hands over. I think invites us to see that there are bigger things at play, and every time you know, we we want to we want to simplify things. So if we feel like we've been betrayed, and I'm you know I'm thinking of my own experience of feeling betrayed, and over over the course of it, processing it, I've come to see that there were much there were a whole heap of factors at play in that drama, and. Uh, it wasn't as simple as someone saying, I'm going to betray Peter. There were all sorts of other things that were drawing them in all sorts of other directions, and they played a role in this greater drama of life, um, and they did hand me over to something I didn't want to be handed over to. But it's too simple to say all it was was them having a sort of a very simplistic idea. I'm going to, I'm, I, and sometimes it does. I mean, sometimes it, life does fall into those simple categories. But I think also often we simplify that which is complex. And when we're dealing with relationships, um, particularly, um, I think we're better off looking at the complexity and seeing there's a bigger drama unfolding and people are being carried away by all sorts of other influences. You know, just even just the desire for self-preservation might have been the reason why someone did something that we see as an act of betrayal. It wasn't that they had it in for us. It was just that they were looking after themselves mm. or not brave enough to stand up or, you know. And so if we um, you know, use the text to invite us into the complexity, I think that helps. I love that. I love widening that out to, to the to the phrase handing over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, this moves us into the second path then once the, the change has occurred. And uh, I, I was very fortunate enough to spend some time earlier this year at the Community of the Transfiguration, which is an hour or two out of Melbourne. Um, just a beautiful spiritual community that, that live together. And they talk about um, the language they use is down, under and up. They say you go mm. down, under and up. And so, you know, if the first path is down, the second path is under. This is the, the bleak um, winter. This is, this is where, you know, when one thing has ended and the new has not yet come, as you always say, Alexander John. 
And um, and this is by far the most difficult um, of the paths. This is the one um, I think that I've noticed at the school. The, the students who are in winter are the ones who resonate most strongly with this. This is when you need probably the, the pattern more than any other time um, in a sense, or at least you, you have a visceral need for it in, in, in a sense. Um, the community of Mark, or that Mark was written out of as, as we believe, uh, we're going through just about the bleakest winter imaginable. Can you give us a little bit of that information for those who maybe haven't heard of it? So we believe that Mark was composed in the year 64, 65, first century, uh, coming out of the Jewish community in Rome. And uh, in the summer of 64, we have a definitive date, uh, Rome burned. And uh, it was really all of Rome burned, but wealthy Rome burned. Uh, the homes of the Roman senators burned. And uh, Nero had just been advocating that this part of Rome be torn down and rebuilt in a classical style to rival Athens. Well, when the fire happened, uh, the Senate was quite upset with Nero, and there was a great sense that could Nero have been even behind the fire? So Nero needed a scapegoat, and he needed a, a, a visceral scapegoat, and he turned to who was the usual scapegoat of Rome, which was the Jewish population. And someone uh, was able to convince Nero that perhaps it wasn't the entirety of the Jewish population, but it was the rebel-rousing Christ believers, Christus believers amongst the Jewish population. So Nero sent his centurions into the Jewish neighborhood knocking on doors. Are you a believer in the Christ? And if you said yes, you and your entire family were going to be taken to the to uh, not uh, the Circus Maximus, but what is now we know is the Circus Nero, and you were going to be executed. And if you said no, the horror didn't stop because you were going to have to name someone who and their family would be executed on your report. So this is this is a moment of utter abject horror because neighbor is having to turn a neighbor to save their own self. Uh, and in the midst of this, the entire Christian population of Rome is wiped out. Uh, Peter is executed. Paul is executed. And if there was ever a moment on the history of the planet that Christianity would have thought it was about to die, this would have been it. And in the midst of this moment comes this incredible gospel, which becomes like the spiritual prayer of a community waiting to be horribly executed. And the, one of the things that we know in history is the Romans who went out to see these Christians die on the floor of the, of the circus wanted to see Christians crying out and pleading for their life, and it didn't happen. The Christians were dying nobly and quietly and almost calmly. And you can imagine that this gospel was the anchor which allowed them to endure such a horrible, horrible physical ending. Mm. but knowing that it was not truly the end. Mm. 
So we can turn now to see why and how this gospel opens with the story of John the Baptist. The community in Rome in this terrible day knew that they were likely to die on the whim of an of a emperor who needed a scapegoat, much the way that John the Baptist died on the whim of a drunken governor who wanted to please uh, a girl. Mm. So uh, this this view. I mean, the the I love in in a. I love each of the Gospels for a particular reason, but this text has got a strength in it, uh, an ability in it, in its rawness, that um, has the grace to hold us through some really, really difficult days. Yeah, yeah. It um, it struck me, Alexander John, reading your your work on on Mark, your reflections on Mark, how uh, I have spent probably the majority of my life dealing with Mark academically theoretically oh what is that what's Marx recounted that or whatever but this was not written academically this was written as life support essentially this was so desperately needed and when you read it from that place it takes on an entirely different meaning and I know you um you look at the four central metaphors of each gospel and and you say the the central metaphor the central image of Mark is the stormy sea where the disciples say to Jesus don't you care that we are perishing that's the phrase we are perishing um, and that's that's such the experience, isn't it? Of the the winter time is is kind of a looking at the stars, crying out to God. Do you not see that I am perishing here? And when you know that there's a gospel and a community that this gospel is written to that have had that literal question and metaphorical question, it um it it oh, I find it so profoundly profoundly helpful. It is. I mean that that text is so so the details in that text are so powerful because. Jesus is in the boat with them, and they've given Jesus the place of honor. If you've ever been in a boat in a storm, where do you want to be? You don't want to be in the front of the boat. You want to be in the back of the boat because it doesn't rock nearly as much. Well, it's not only that Jesus is in the boat in the back, how nice, but he's asleep, how nice. And then the gospel has given us that added detail not just asleep, but asleep with his head on a pillow. <laughs> how, how wonderful that we are going down and our God is comfortably asleep. Yeah. That's how it feels to us. Yes. And yet that's not the truth. Our God is with us. Yeah. That's a lovely and reading. We will, um, and we yeah. will get to the far shore. Yeah. Mark, is, Mark, you're really highlighting one of the things we need to do when we read Mark. Whenever Mark uses detail, we have to say, why is that there? So why is there a pillow? Because Mark is so economic with words. Um, that's a really beautiful reading. That's great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's interesting, Alexander, John, I, I was listening to, um, alongside the book that I also found an audio book where you gave a few lectures on the, the fourfold path that I've been listening to as well. And, and you mentioned that when you're in this time in that second of the four paths, the, the question really is just, can I endure 20 more minutes of this? It's nothing grander or greater or more significant. It's not, am I growing into my best self or have I, have I learned anything profound yet? It is simply it feels like mere survival and um and the permission that the the gospel of mark gives 
to, you know, to not really aim for anything in this particular time more than just mere survival, more than just 20 more minutes. I think that's so, um, so liberating to remove all the other pressures in those times than just, just survive, just survive. Yeah. I'll take 20 minutes for me. It's usually, can I, can I take this for five more minutes for two more minutes? Yeah. Uh, Because it's almost like every nerve ending in my body is raw. And I want out of this place so much. And yet I know that it's really in this place that is the deep presence of grace and of God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this um, ties in really beautifully to the, the way you explore the ending of Mark. And we spoke a little bit about this uh, in our Christmas episode last year, but the original ending of Mark is, um, is far from triumphalistic. It's far from, you know, the, the happy singing and hugging and dancing that maybe we get a vibe of in other, in other parts of the other books, the ending of Mark uh, being, you know, and they were terrified essentially originally um, and and uh, I know you speak a lot about how this is the only hint we get of resurrection in this second path is maybe rumors of it, word of it. Um, someone might proclaim to us resurrection has occurred, but we have no sensory evidence of it yet. Do, in, in what way does resurrection function for us or, or help us in a time but when we, we don't yet have any sensory evidence of it? It, it is that I, I can live through this one more minute, five more minutes, 20 more minutes. It's that moment by moment, I can keep going. I can stay in this. Mm. Uh, and it is so true. I, 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 I find the original ending to Mark one of the most profound texts in all of the four Gospels, where the women fled from the tomb for fear and amazement had overtaken them. And that that the the they don't even get an angel at the tomb. They just get a young man at the tomb who tells them to go to Galilee. Well, if you know the story of Galilee in this gospel, Galilee is the place of your chaos. The Sea of Galilee is, is I think, better called in, in this text, the Sea of Chaos. And they are told, don't flee the chaos. Take the Christ with you into the chaos. That is the way of resurrection. Hmm. Yeah. And so, so what do we do then with our, our impulse, our desire in these, these winter times where everything is bleak and there is not yet any hint of summer? What do we do with our desire for a shortcut? Because um, I think that's probably the most human thing. And this is what I found in, in the many conversations I've had is, is um, basically what's the quickest way out of the cave? How can, I, how can I get through this as quick as possible back to where the sun is shining and where everything's great in the world? What do we do with that desire? Well, there are a couple of things. And one is to know that it's a trick of the mind, uh, to know that it's ultimately, even though we think that's, that's the better way, it's actually not the better way. Um, reach for that one or two good friends reach for those treasured, treasured people around. I I used to do hospital chaplaincy work. And uh, when you're doing hospital chaplaincy work there, you you have to, you will sleep in the hospital a couple of nights a week. And you know that there's always gonna be that two or 3 a.m. call. And the person is going to be in extreme pain. They're gonna feel isolated and in pain. And when you're in that place, it's hard to believe that anybody can actually be willing to stay with you in that place. 
So if there is that one person that just a couple of people in your life will be willing to walk with you when you think that no one would want to be with you when you're like this. And there also is an inner reality in my belief of the Christ, which is always walking with us in this place. But to reach for that and to try to still our minds that definitely, and, and maybe our bodies that want to run away from this place. Mm. There is something coming after this, but the way that we get to it is not by running away. It is by going through. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you know the children's book, We're Going on a Bear Hunt, Alexander John. It's a very um, famous kid's book. Oh, well, I, it's a lovely kid's book that was read to me as a child and very popular here in Australia. I'm not sure about globally, but in the book, I, I use this with my students as a bit of a, a joke recently in, in one of our um, gatherings. In the book, it's a family trying to find a bear and along the way, they keep finding obstacles, whether it's a forest or a mud pit. And they say the line, we can't go under it. We can't go over it. We have to go through it. And, um, and I use that as the sort of the guiding principle of winter that we can't go under it. We can't go over it. We have to go through it. It's, um, and, and it, as uncomfortable as it is, I had, um, I had one uh, particular person I, I remember say to me afterwards, but there is no way that this amount of pain I'm feeling could be the path to new life. And I, um, my only response was, it's the only path. That That's almost a sign in a sense, not wanting to in any way glorify it for one second but or, or minimize it. But it's almost a signpost. When you hit that point, you're you're walking the right path, isn't it? Mm. It is. Yeah. It is. Um, I also am reminded of something that uh, someone we've had on the podcast a few times in George Tripp, a, a lovely man who's a big part of my life now who lives in Western Australia, a Jungian analyst. I was talking to him about this idea of the second path being a cave. It's like a, you're stuck in the darkness. You can't see any way forward or whatever's happening. And he said, in time, the cave, you realize you weren't in a cave. You were in a gold mine. That is where you mine the gold that will in some way be profoundly helpful the rest of your life. But when you're in the darkness, you don't yet know it's gold. It's just heavy. It, all it is at that point is heavy. Um and, and I suppose this is what moves us then from the, the second path into the third path, the question of John, which is how do we experience joy? And um, I've heard you beautifully speak and, and write, Alexander John, about the shock of the arrival of the third path and how um, it's perfectly illustrated by the bleak ending of Mark to the, the stunningly beautiful poetic beginning of, of John. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that, if that's all right? Well, this is the truth that I've experienced in my life, but I've also experienced so many times as a spiritual director when I'm sitting with people and you never know that moment when whether you, grace falls down, grace wells up, the turnaround happens. Five minutes beforehand, you can't predict that this moment is coming. But you know when that moment happens that it came from somewhere else, that it, it came from a, a, a reality greater than you. And it, it arrives almost by shock or by surprise, by utter surprise. And this to me is one of the, one of the great truths when the four gospel journey was created by our ancestors, that they realized that you go from that fear and terror at the end of Mark 
to the absolute searing beauty of the opening of John. And it happens in a moment. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, which is so, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful, hopeful um, reminder, I suppose, to those walking their way through a, a mark time that while there is a lot of healing and, um, and growth that happens slowly, there is generally a, a moment where everything changes. I think it was my younger brother who, when I was talking to him about it, said to me, he said so, something like, I suppose um, both Matthew and John both are moments of generally instant change. Something changes quite instantly in both of them that takes you out of a comfortable reality. And it's, it's a very funny way that the universe works this way, but, but it does seem to jump out, <laughs> jump out of you. And I know it's the same when we read the Easter stories that the women are walking to the tomb, not, not with rumor of resurrection or maybe it's all going to be better today. It's, it's always a little bit of a shock. Can you talk a little bit maybe about the, the, the gospel of John and, and um, I guess the, how this ties into the, the, the third path of joy. So we, we think, and there's a lot of discussion about whether John perhaps even came out of Alexandria. Uh, some people have posited Jerusalem. I, to me, that's not very plausible because Jerusalem was destroyed after 70. Um, I think Ephesus is the place that all, that has all the DNA and the fingerprints of the text. Um, Ephesus was a capital city of the eastern capital of the Roman Empire. It was a fairly affluent city. It was also a city that had a very, very uh, strong, powerful women's community. And this is very important to the, to, to the gospel. One of the other things about Ephesus, though, is that the, over, the above ground Ephesus is this gleaming affluent city built on hundreds of of miles of tunnels beneath the ground where the slaves are kept. Ephesus is the center of the Roman slave market, and it's the reason for Ephesus' great wealth. And Ephesus is a place which has tremendous ethnic diversity. All the tribes of North Africa all the way to India are represented there. So when Paul or Paul's disciple comes to Ephesus to preach, and the early Christian community is founded there in the 40s of the first century, they hear this proclamation that all are one. And in a, in, in, in a place which is extremely tribal, to hear this deeper call that it no longer matters your wealth or your poverty, it no longer matters whether you are free or slave in that way. It no longer matters in terms of there is a, a common humanity that we all share because we're born of the same source. That everybody, regardless of their station, are people of worth and dignity. And the Christian community now does something we think in Ephesus for the first time which is we say that we are the community of the table, that we are the community where the door is open and we have a table and all the particularities of your life no longer matter, come. Free, slave, male, female, Jewish, Gentile, North African, it no longer matters, come. And 
what 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 is so stunning about this moment is, is that our Jewish mother has the same teaching, beautiful teaching about the oneness of all people. But Judaism organizes itself differently. It says, let us be one by each of us gathering in our separate homes. Christianity says, no, 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 no. Let us be one by mixing together as one, by sitting together as one. And so the Gospel of John is this wider proclamation of a new way to live with each other. It's not so much a new teaching as it is the epiphany of a new grace that calls us to tear down the walls between us and say that all those things that we think divide us from each other, that's our common humanity. Come, let us have the new Jerusalem. The old Jerusalem is the place of our mother tradition, the place where the 12 tribes of Israel will gather. The new Jerusalem is the table where the 144 tribes of the world will gather. 144 is just simply the metaphor for, for, for everyone. And I think today the 144 can be the cosmos. Mm. So this, this realization that, the, that Jesus came not to be only for the Jewish people, but Jesus the Christos came for every cell of the cosmos. And this is a stunning sociological change on the planet. We cannot find, and there, there may be another tradition who has done this before this moment, but they didn't leave a record. This is the first moment that we have a record of on the planet where people came together, pan-tribal, and said, we are one. It's quite a beautiful thing to follow the bleakness of winter, isn't it, to, uh, to move into not not just a spring that was as good as maybe the summer or the autumn before was, but as Sue was saying, a deepening spiral, something that is unlike anything you, you feel you've experienced before. It's um, I suppose it is the, the constant encouragement to keep walking through uh, the, the winter times is what awaits is is just beyond glorious. Um, One question I have about the third path, Alexander John, and it's something a student said to me. Um, he said to me when I was talking about this, he said, well, I can understand why we'd need help to face change for the first one. And I can understand why we'd need help to experience the trials of the, th the second path. And I can understand why we'd need help to mature in service. But why do we need help to experience joy? Doesn't that one just happen naturally? It's a great question. Uh, uh, very astute student. <laughs> um, this gospel comes at the end of the first century. It comes about 50 years after the founding of the community uh, in Ephesus. Uh, in Ephesus, which was the community founded on what we might say is the beatific vision of oneness and allness and beauty, 50 years later, they've lost it. Uh, all the old jealousies, all the old acrimony, all the old tribalism is resurfacing. And John is saying, that there, there is a way that we have to walk into the joy that makes us always want to pull up another chair at the table. And it's not joy for joy's sake. 
It's joy that is going to deconstruct our old understanding and help us build a new foundation for a wider understanding. Mm. So unfortunately, what we see in Ephesus, and we see it in ourselves, I know it in my own Roman Catholic tradition, we have a moment, we have, we had a moment, we had an epiphany, at the, we call it the Second Vatican Council, and then immediately after that came the regressive forces that wanted to control the epiphany rather than learn how to use it. And that's the same thing. It, the joy of John will reduce to narcissism, if I can say it that way, rather than move us forward in truly maturing in service, unless we know how to spiritually harness it. Yeah, this is, I suppose, Peter, what you were talking about earlier about the consolation desolation risks that consolation hubris can be this this big risk and um and i know this is the thing with the the third path is once uh, especially if the winter was bleak once you reach spring once you reach um you know the glorious garden of john as you call it um the temptation is just to stay here now i've done the whole journey to get here and it's glorious and i'm just gonna surely i can set up here now and stay here for good um uh, and it's mine and it's mine yes yes yeah. 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 That's a really good, that's a really good point, Peter, as well. And and that sort of probably ties into the way people can get very defensive of their own self-made life or whatever they feel has been their self-made life um, because they've, they've suffered to get it. And now that they have it, no one's taking it off wow. them. Um, so how do we step forward then into the, the fourth path, the, the, because this is probably what we were talking about earlier. This is the idea that, that once resurrection has occurred, that isn't the end of the story. And, um, and there is a fourth path that the whole thing in some ways falls apart if you don't have this fourth path, this next step of the journey. How do we step beyond our desire to now just sit in the sunshine all day long and sing happy songs and, and actually go somewhere with it? How do, we, how do we begin that journey? Oh, that's, um, th this is one of the most challenging steps because our culture has taught us we want the garden we we want the brass ring we we we, we want the the elixir we want the ecstasy and that's the end the end is getting the ecstasy and the text of luke um the text of luke is coming we think composed probably somewhere in turkey around the great city of antioch but it wasn't a text like the other three that was written to a particular community at a particular moment. This was written to the entirety of Christianity in the Mediterranean region. Because what's happened now in the 80s of the first century is that um, Judaism, our mother tradition, and ourselves were, were breaking apart. And Judaism has this really difficult, I, I, I call it a very long bad hair day, um, in, in, the 80, in the 80s of the first century, uh, where in their anxiety over the loss of the temple and the massacre of the priesthood, there, there is a small group of Jewish people who are trying to exert authority by saying that if you believe the Messiah, the Christ, has already come, that thought removes your Jewish blood from you. We no longer consider you Jewish. 
And if you were part of us in our synagogues, you must now leave. Well, that largely is us. And this is, this is a, a terrible, terrible rip in the, in the fabric of the family. But not only is it a, a rip in the family, but now the emperor looks out and he goes, oh, we've got this tradition that's passionate. And the emperor didn't like passionate people because he didn't know how to control them. And so he sets up a lot of legal restrictions on us, thinking that if we can't have the good schools and we can't have the good neighborhoods and we, we, we can't have health care and all these other things that, that we'll come back in line. And what he discovers is that the more restrictions that are put on us, the larger we grow because there is something in the human heart that wants love, that wants freedom, that wants oneness. So we follow this, but we also have the teaching that we are going to live for today and tomorrow, that we know that we are about the transformation of our culture which does not happen by changing a law. It happens by growing the grace of a human heart. And so our work is not going to be to go to the Roman Senate and get them to pass a law that says you can do something. It's going to be to bring one heart, one heart, one heart, one heart alive in the values of the Christ. Love compassion, unity, forgiveness, reconciliation, justice. And for, for the values of how Christians are living, the emperor becomes even more convinced that he must eradicate us. So how do we move from living in the garden to taking the garden everywhere is the way I like to say it. Yeah, that's lovely. Um, we by by realizing that we are going to need we're, we're going to need to live a reality in our personal and small community life that's going to be different than our cultural we're going to have to be uh countercultural. we're going to have to uh in luke's words because luke luke beautifully is almost the the uh um the proponent of what today we call mindfulness. <laughs> Everything in Luke is about come back home to here and now. Mm. You can't look down the road to the golden world that you want. That's not where you are. And you're never going to fully attain it. There's never going to be a day when the service is going to end. Come home to the simplicity and the beauty of the work that God is asking you to do today. Hmm. And then leave, uh, leave work and enjoy life. And I, this is, I think one of the most beautiful things that I, I love in Luke is where it, whereas Mark gives us the beautiful text of Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. Cause the, the community of Mark is going to their execution. Luke gives us the text, 
pick up your cross today and follow me. And I like to think that the second half of that is, and put it down (laughs) and sing and dance and know beauty because those are the ways that you can carry the cross longer and farther. Yeah, that's that's just stunning. And I know I've I've uh, read in in the book you write about how so many things in the Gospel of Luke happen on the road somewhere from one place to another, and um, rather than at the destination that they're going to, they happen along the journey, um, which you know ties in again quite nicely with the name of this podcast, the On the Way podcast, I suppose. But um, but this idea that it is this this constant calling to where you are today it probably it's not where you've come from and it's not where you think you may be going it's the road that you're on in this particular moment and what you're facing in this particular moment and um i suppose it also ties in really beautifully with the whole sense that we said at the very beginning um sue your comment about how change is the one constant that anytime you try to make something static you're moving against the very nature of reality which is dynamic and so You've been shown the garden, and now you you keep moving. That's not the end point of the journey. You keep moving. We do quite like static, though, sometimes. We do. (laughs) We are fond as human beings of, particularly when we found someplace nice, you know, and and I think that, you know, that image of the table, we we have, you know, and Peter's saying we've owned it, you know, we've marked out our places at the table. We've carved little letterings into the chairs, and we've set the table in a certain way. And we've got we've got quite embedded, you know, and that's why we need that disruption, not only of new people, but I think the road is a good image. We need that disruption. We've got to head out again. We don't always want to head out again when we're comfortably <laughs> there. Um, but to, to go and the, and there is the risk that when you head out in the road that you might have to take up your cross along the way uh, and yeah. hopefully put it down again. But, you know, <laughs> the, but, you know, that that's on. I, I just think we are we humans do like yeah. to set things in concrete and make in make, make them make the, the garden beautiful, but very stable. Mm. And, and the thought of heading out in the road again can can be a challenge. You are allowed to set up your caravan for a little while, though. Which is, yeah, in John's Gospel, you know, in my father's house, there are many resting places. Is actually a reference to the fact that in those days, a caravan you didn't stop for an overnight stay because it took you three days to set up camp and it took you three days to pack up camp. So you were there for a restful time. So that's um, so you are allowed to set up camp for a while, as long as you realise you're in a tent and the tents fold up and you do have to move on. Yeah. It's knowing when to pack up. Mm. There's some wisdom and discernment needed there. Absolutely. Yeah. If I could turn my camera around at this moment, um, this house is right on the Camino and there's a whole group of pilgrims walking by my window. (laughs) (laughs) And it is that, uh, having walked the Camino a number of times, it is that absolute wonder of carrying everything on your back, getting up in the morning and putting those few things in the pack, and getting to where you are that night and taking those few things back out. Mm -hmm. But you really, really know, I think one of the the glories of the pilgrimage is you really get to know how the road is home. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so beautiful and I, I think this this whole work of yours Alexander John it's just um 
I mean, in my own life, in the lives of people I've shared it with, it's just been, I don't have the words really to thank you enough or to talk about how profoundly transformative it's been because in a, in a static binary world of good and bad and happy lives and sad lives and whatever it might be, but that's how we understand the world. So often people feel, I noticed, I have felt that we've fallen to the bad side of the binary. We're, we're now in the darkness. We're now in the bad life. We're now in the sadness. We're now in the failure, whatever it might be, and believe that that is now the narrative, the tape of our life. And um, this is just, again, I mean, one of our biggest things we talk about all the time on the podcast is deconstructing binaries. Um but realizing that the, the, the darkness or that the winter is, well, darkness is not the opposite of light any more than winter is the opposite of summer. Um, it's just another right. stage on this cycle. So learning this path, recognizing this pattern, seeing it everywhere and trusting, trusting this pattern that it is one we are constantly moving through in so many different ways. It's just the most phenomenal work. And, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for, for all that you've given and shared uh, in this space. It, it's an honor. It 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 um, it arrived for me, and what I'll all I'm trying to do is I'm trying to share the gift that was given me. The book, uh, well, the hardcover edition that that um, that I've got a copy of is Radical Transformation: The Four Gospel Journey of Heart and Mind. There's a, another edition as well that is on the Quadratus website and uh, other resources there too. And and we we spoke well, about this. Dom, let, let me yes. let me just the hardcover is under this one title. The paperback and the Kindle are exactly the same text, but those two editions go under the title of Heart and Mind. Heart and so mind, yeah. uh, it's just the, the discrimination was that we wanted to give a different name to the hardbound edition. Yep. Yeah, beautiful. And it is all on the, the Quadratus website. Um, and uh, is the plan still to have the Christmas, the 12 Days of Christmas book out later this year as well? Uh, 13 days of 13, Christmas. of course. Sorry. What have I done? <laughs> and, um, we're right on the cusp. Say a prayer. Cause if I, if I can't finish the text very shortly, uh, it's going to be out, uh, sometime in 2023. All right. Well, well, we'll look forward to that whenever it does arrive. Thank you so much, uh, for, for your time, uh, again, Alexander John Shire. It's been such a gift. Thank you, Dom. Thank you, Sue. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Thank you. Generosity.